Well, hi folks, this is Ken, and this is Naturally Adventurous. This week's episode is going to be the second and final part of my discussion with Julian Hoff about birding culture, community, you get into all sorts of interesting sort of psychological and sociological territory. This strange little community of bird watchers is quite an interesting microcosm on humans as a whole. So I hope you enjoy the discussion. Um, I, I know there's a couple of stories you wanted to get to, and you mentioned a couple of stories you'd heard of British twitching, which I was fascinated about. And one you'd mentioned was, was red-breasted nuthatch. You'd heard a story from somebody. Could, do you want to expound on that? And I can yeah. add to it yeah, a little so bit. I I don't claim to know a lot about the history of, of British twitching or rarities, but this this there's this legendary twitch of this red-breasted nuthatch that showed up in, in the British Isles. Uh, I guess it was a first record for Britain. And I, I've been told that thousands of people showed up to see this bird. And it was on a farm or something, and... People got a bit out of hand, and they essentially trampled this whole farm, and <laughs> people were essentially jockeying for position to try to see this. You know, there's there's hundreds or maybe thousands of birders, and they're jockeying for position to see this tiny little nuthatch as it pops up in a pine tree, and tensions ran high among people who hadn't seen it, and there were actually multiple fistfights that broke out. Now... <laughs> Some of this may be completely false, but this is the right. legend as I have received it. it uh, it's this almost Woodstock-esque event in British twitching history. It, I, I'm laughing here because I, I'm listening to you describe this as kind of a, a legendary twitch. This was just a normal weekend for me. <laughs> you know, it's like, this, was, this was like, yeah, that's just, that's just a normal twitch when a rare bird turns up, you know. Big crowds, fist fights. Oh yeah, it, it, it. I I was actually at that twitch, which I, I found funny when you mentioned it to me. So, the I'll flesh it out a bit more if if that's helpful. So, no, fl flesh it out and correct uh, what I've inaccurately portrayed. Yeah. So, I I was it was October nineteen eighty nine and. I was on the Scilly Isles, which is a, a, a rarity hotspot group of islands off the southwest tip of Britain. And, you know, the annual pilgrimage there, it, it, it had been a bit lackluster that year. Scillies had, had always delivered rare birds in October. And that year, I think there was like a red-throated pipit and a blue-winged teal. And, you know, there was like, at that point back in the 80s, there was probably 900 birders there in October and wow. you know there was a lot of day drinking going on in 1989 there's just not a lot of birds there so there used to be a, a restaurant there that everybody used to eat in called the Porth Cresser and outside there was a chalkboard and there was no cell phones back in the day it was just CBs and people would radio in the rare birds from the other islands and it would be written on this chalkboard outside the restaurant so every time you came back into town, you would go and look at the board, as it was called. And I remember walking past one day, there was 
there was like a, a, a huddle of birders around the, the, the board and you could tell there was a bit of like excitement in the air. So anyway, I pushed through and I looked at the board and there was just th three words written on the red-breasted nuthatch. And I was just like, <laughs> Three yes, words. Yes, fantastic at last. And then the next two words made my heart sink because the next two words were, was Holcomb Norfolk. <laughs> which for, for British people, if you imagine a map of Britain, Norfolk is like the arse of Britain. It's the bit that sticks out on the right-hand side. And I'm 400 miles away on a group of islands and a three-hour ferry ride from it. And it is, as you said, a first record for Britain. But it was even a first record for Europe. I think it was the first time it had turned up in the old world. And with Silly being so boring... There was this huge run on the ferry office for tickets because it the boat didn't sail on a Sunday, so we had to get off the islands on a Saturday. So it, it was like it was like all all a big group of rats, you know, <laughs> uh, deserting a sinking ship to get on another ship. And so I ran down, I packed all my gear up, I jumped on the ferry, I managed to get a ticket, and I was like, well, I'll figure out how to get to Norfolk when I get off the ferry. So anyway, there was a huge number of people jump on the ferry and luckily a couple of friends of mine were, were on the ferry from Manchester. And so I organized myself a lift in their car. So we took a three hour ferry ride back to the mainland. We picked up the car. We drove like seven hours through the night to get to Norfolk by dawn. And I remember Mike Edgecombe um, whose car I was in, he, he was a, a dentist and he, he had a cell phone and a car phone, which in, in, <laughs> back in the day, it was like one of those uh, war phones, you know, it was like the size Ooh. of a house brick. And um, you just, you know, it was just all this communication of like, where was the bird scene? And, you know, just trying to figure out a treasure map of X marks a spot. And, and where it was seen, and a little bit of the backstory is the way it was discovered was uh, a well-known birder in the southwest part of Britain, Pete Ailey. His mum and dad, this, this is how weird birding gets sometimes, his mum and dad who had an interest in birds were actually holidaying in Norfolk. And they've been walking through this coastal pine belt at a place called Holcombe when they saw a strange nuthatch feeding on the floor. And they recognized it obviously as being something different. And through conversations with other birders, they went down, checked it out, and realized it was a red-breasted nuthatch. And that's how the bird got put out on the grapevine. And it was a Saturday, so you knew there was going to be hundreds of people going. And I remember waking up in the morning, not really sleeping. I just slept in the car in the parking lot. And there was about 700 people there. And this is, a <laughs> this is a narrow coastal belt. And it was like a football crowd had basically descended onto this little woodlot. And it, it was probably one of the biggest twitches I'd been on. And as light came, nobody knew where the bird was. And what had happened then is everybody just kind of split up. 
And at some point, somebody heard this bird call, and obviously you're very familiar with the call. And I, I just spent the autumns at Cape May, so I was very familiar with, with redbreast in Nuttach. And all of a sudden, you would just see the crowd start peeling off and, and just <laughs> running hell for leather through this pine belt. And it was starting to get a little bit crazy because it, if you've ever... It, I don't know if you're a runner at all, but if you've ever run in a road race, it, it felt like that start of the road race where there's 600 people and uh-huh. you all just start running and you don't know where you're going. He's <laughs> just following the crowd. And people start to lose their mind because you just can't get to the front of the crowd. And, and you know, red breasted nuttach is like three inches long in, in, a, in a pine tree. And people were just starting to lose it. You know, there was like, just <laughs> like grown men crying at the side of the path in frustration of, of not being able to see this bird. And I remember at <laughs> one point, somebody had heard it. And again, the crowd started running off. And there's no pass through this, this, this wood. It's just like, you know, a, a two-person wide track. And um, it was hours of, of panicking and when anybody would see the bird, you would get there and you'd be 400 people behind the person that saw it. And <laughs> as you alluded to, tempers started to get a bit frayed. And um, I, I remember just standing there and I'm thinking, I, I'm just never going to see this bird. Um, there's, the, by midday, there was 1,400 people there. Somebody counted 1,400 people walking around a wood. It was like Keystone Cops in the woods. It was, it was insane. And, and I remember, I'm like, I, I just wandered off. And I think the only way I'm going to find this is just, just wandering off. And I got to a point where I was just stood there in this pine belt. And um, the guy next to me said, I've, I've got it. Which is the next best three words you can ever hear as a birder. <laughs> just, yep. yeah. And I'm like, oh my God. And, and it's, it's, he's like... Don't shout, don't tell anybody because you'll start a panic. <laughs> just get trampled. Just, yep. and we're like, I'm just going to tick it. I'm going to get good looks of it. And then I'm going to whistle or shout people over. And then somebody else on the other side of the tree saw it and shouted. And then within a second, I remember turning around and I'll, I'll never forget this because it's emblazoned in my brain. It was like a scene out of Braveheart worth <laughs> 600 people running towards you from every direction through a pine belt where there's no paths to converge on your spot. And, and it's, it's just pandemonium. And I, re- I remember that there was, there was a, a poor guy in front of me trying to describe to everybody where this bird was. And he was obviously flustered. And he, he, he was like, yeah, it's, it's in the tree. It's in the pine tree. It's in the tree with the leaves on it. And I remember one guy, what guy must have been from Yorkshire? He just turned around and he just said, Now then, youth, if they don't start giving the proper directions, I'm going to come down there and lamp the one. Get this shit together. <laughs> <laughs> which, which for non-British people translates to, if you don't start giving precise directions so I can quickly find this bird and add it to my list, there's going to be some punching going on. So... It, it it was it was crazy and and the, the the story that i heard got a bit more information on is is that there was one guy that i think i know 
had become so frustrated at, at hours of not seeing this bird running around this wood that there was, I think there was a bit of a fist fight. And then the last thing that happened is he just picked up his telescope and tripod and, and, and just wailed it into the bushes. So there was like a crowd at some point that saw a telescope and tripod just like fly through <laughs> the air. And, you know, the, the panic of, of British twitching is that you don't want to be left out. You don't want to be that person. Ooh, gripped. You don't want to be gripped off. And this is the worst part is you now, the panic has now separated you from everybody else in the car. So now you're wondering, am I going to be the only one in the car that's seen it? Am I going to be the only one in the car that hasn't seen it? And that's the worst part of a drive home. Either way, yeah, it's awkward. Yep. It's awkward, but I'd rather be the one that's seen it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you don't want to be that person in the car that, that didn't see it. And I know a lot of people there had to go back like three weekends. And the worst, Oof. well, not the worst part, but the, the ironic part is that bird stayed for six months. <laughs> and and one of the you could have gone any time and seen it on, well, with your leisure. You you could, but here, here's the, and I don't know if this has been your experience, um, but in 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 Britain when you're twitching with a bird that's really hard to locate, you really want to see it on the first couple of days where there's fourteen hundred people looking for it. When you go back two months later and it's you and a couple of dog walkers in a huge pine forest looking for a three and a half inch bird, your, your chances <laughs> of success dwindle very quickly. So th there's kind of a, a rewards benefit there of having a lot of people. But yeah, that was one of the, the biggest twitches I've, I've, I've been on. It was, it was pretty insane. Wow, that's a great story. I, uh, I appreciate getting a more full account. It, it sounds pretty, pretty mad. I certainly, I don't think there's ever been a twitch like that in the history of American birding. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know if you're aware of any. No, no, I think back in the day, there was just a, a lot of birders there in, in Britain. And I think now, if you speak to some of my friends in Britain that turn up at some rare birds there, and there's been some rare birds in Britain since I left, obviously. The crowds are nowhere near as big. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not oh, sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. I don't know if there's just been a turnover in, in the demographic of, of people interested in birds. But there was definitely. Huh. I mean, that same year in February of '89, one of the biggest twitches I, I I wasn't at, and and I think I wish I'd been at the twitch more to be part of the story than to actually see the bird though, though i would have liked to have seen the yep. bird was the golden wing warbler um which turned up in kent england the first weekend there was like three thousand people there at a housing estate i mean the buses got shut down <laughs> oh, i mean the whole the, the whole yeah it, the, <sighs> they had to bring in police it was just ridiculous so <laughs> can't imagine oh man there's two things I want to follow up out of this red-breasted nuthatch story. It, it's such a good story. but And the first is a very fundamental question, but it might be a hard one to answer. It's just, why do so many people want to see that bird so much? What motivates those, those birders? Like, what makes them just absolutely frantic to see that red-breasted nuthatch? I, I think it's a combination of 
of things we've probably talked about in in the past in in, in our conversations that there's that hunter gatherer mentality. Um, the 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 British list, you know, because it's kind of a, an an island and there's there's boundaries there, and you, you can drive from one end of the country to another. Um, compared to as you mentioned earlier, you know, the states is so vast. You know, you have to split it up into certain regions and certain listing regions for competitive. The the British list was very competitive. To have the the top British list was was you know, part of that tribal aspect of, of having a, a hierarchy and, and being governed by a political body that was like the British Ornithologist Union, I should say. And, and they were the gatekeepers of the British list. Then you had the British Birds Rarities Committee, which adjudicated on all the rare birds in Britain. So there were these two bodies that kind of drove... The, the, the listing rules and you know you, you had a thing set up there were you know back in those early days it, it was hard to travel to foreign places and not many people in Britain had a lot of money to do the traveling we can do now so the, the, the main birding you were going to do was in Britain and therefore the main commonality there was, was everybody had a British list and you know you could have a have a checklist of who was at the top and 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 there was that strive to have the top british list or have a high british list so every time something new turned up it's like oh i need to see that and there was just this drive to see it it's 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 kind of crazy <laughs> it is it is kind of crazy so so there's the competitive listing aspect in which you want to just get plus one on your British list. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's some drab little warbler or, or a golden winged warbler. Yeah. Um, that's one aspect. Another aspect is, as you said, like people didn't have the money to travel or maybe they just didn't have the will or think they could travel. And so it was like a once in a lifetime chance to see a golden winged warbler if you're uh, somebody living in the UK. So, and you know, I can imagine if you sort of saw these birds in books your whole life, just to imagine that was in some woodlot in Britain would be incredibly exciting. Yeah. Um, And I also imagine, I imagine there's a community aspect too, in which you want to be able to say you saw something. Oh yeah. I saw that red breasted nuthatch because birders in my experience, especially British birders, they talk a lot about past rarities. And if you didn't see one, you're just going to be gripped by that over and over again. It's going to be like a needle in your side. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. I was just going to say that. that there's, there's almost a sense of you do not want to be left out. And, and I remember when I was in my teens and 20s, if I couldn't get to a rare bird that I wanted to see, it would drive me bananas. It was you know, <laughs> sleepless nights. It's like, oh, you know... All my mates have gone and seen it. I can't get there. I've been gripped off. I'm like, it, it's, you know, you'd be in the pub and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, you remember the Norfolk red-breasted nuthatch or, you know, the silly yellow throw. And it's just a very bonding thing. But when you are the only one that didn't get to see that, it, 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 can, <laughs> it can feel very isolating. 
I know you look back now as as a, as as we are wise older people and just say, yeah, what was all that about? But it, it's it's the world you lived in, and um, you know, to miss out on a rare bird was was crazy, and and that was a big drive of going to see everything. Is that, you know, you wanted to be in the club, and and you know, that's 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 mainly it. That the drive to to feel like you know you're part of it so yeah it's I, part I of the it's accurate, a tribal yeah. ritual so did you do any twitching when when you were growing up was that something that that you did locally i mean i did very so. little no i i did very little i so you know i started birding when i didn't have a car or anything but i i wasn't in a place where there was a lot of public transport Hitchhiking was viewed as unsafe, so I just had very limited transportation options. I, I absolutely would have if I'd been able to. If I'd been in a country like Britain with, you know, public rail and buses and stuff, I absolutely would have. I mean, I did crazy bike rides and all sorts of things to see birds, but there's just, you know, you can't really chase rarities 100 miles away on a bike or, or 400 miles away or, or whatever. Right. Um, so I guess I just was never quite able to. And then I pretty quickly went, once I had mobility, I, I, I pretty quickly jumped to birding all over the country and tending to seek things out where they belonged rather than, you know, rather than going for some vagrant uh, spoonbill in New York. <clears throat> I'll just go to Florida or whatever. And then I, I, I also very quickly jumped to international birding. So... I guess I always had the philosophy of like I'd rather see it where it belongs. I I didn't get that rarity bug, um, but the dynamics in the states are just very different. I think Britain Britain is small. It has a very short bird list, not a lot of really colorful exotic birds. Oh come so on, it, it Ken! Does, it, come on, <laughs> <laughs> willow warblers and chiff chaffs. You not not colorful. <laughs> no wonder we got to see a golden wing warbler. Oh yeah. I mean, America is just so much bigger. So, so you know, very early in my birding, I was really focusing on well-known phenomena and breeding birds. And, you know, I was traveling all over the, the United States and Canada and even Mexico, seeking things out where they belonged. And kind of, I had more of a, like an ecological bent or, or a habitat bent. I, you know, I was keen to understand the biogeography and and what was in which habitat and how did those things change over the course of the year. So very different focus to my birding. Yeah. And I think that's probably a more, a general difference between British birding and American birding. We, we chatted about this earlier prior to the podcast, right? Is that American birders tend to have broader interests uh, in other natural history stuff as well. Whereas Brit birders tend to be more bird uh, myopic. Yeah. The focus was definitely, on on rarities and migration and one of the things that you just touched on there was growing up in in the northwest part of england a lot of my peers were of the same you know social economic demographic so you know we didn't have a lot of money you know we maybe had one car which you had to borrow from your parents if they let you 
to travel to see some birds if you didn't get a ride. And what one of the things as, as a young kid is a friend of mine that I'll be forever grateful to, a guy called Chris Fogg, was the older person that had the car that every weekend would drive us to these rarities. And, you know, I was only a teenager, so I was a passenger and gas prices were pretty high. So, you know, you'd, you'd throw in a few quid for, for gas and split it between you. And, you know, there'd be four of you rocketing off to various parts of the Britain every weekend to see a rare bird. So part of the thing for me of twitching birds was, was obviously the bird. But I got to meet all these fascinating people and spend my weekend going to places in Britain that I would never have been able to get to on my own and sharing in this kind of experience with like-minded people. The, the, nobody in my class at school was doing that. They were just hanging out in, in town, doing their own thing. And I was just getting to see some fantastic parts of Britain, which for, for despite the weather and the dowdy birds, um, is a beautiful beautiful fantastic place I'm, I'm so glad I, I was able to grow up birding there but you touched on traveling a hundred miles to see a bird on a, on a bike and the only way of getting to a rare bird if you didn't have a lift was to hitchhike because nobody could afford a, a train ticket or a bus so one of the things that you and I talked about that's very particular to British birding when I was growing up is the hitchhiking aspect to it um, and that was not something you did but I, I know if you've read Ken Kaufman's Kingbird Highway book he spent a lot of time hitching but that was a big big part of birding you know if you had a badge that that you hitch for a rare bird it was it carried greater weight and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, appreciation. That, that Prestige. Like, oh, you, yeah, you hitch for that? Oh, man. So there's a lot of hitching stories, you know. I mean, I, a I, twitch I, hitch. Yeah, yeah, that, that was, um, you know, I, I hitched for one bird, which, you know, we, we can get to later on if we, if we want to talk about that. But, yeah, hitchhiking was, was something that, that isn't done now. I think we talked about that from a safety point of view and that. I, I don't know if it's related to that or whether it's just different times. Well, I, I think you should tell the story. It's a good one. This was uh, twitching Memora's Warbler, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so to, to set this up, um, I, I started twitching in 1983. So like my, my, my first twitch ever was a Ross's goal, which is just like mythical. Um, that was my first twitch, believe it or not. It's a bird I've wanted to see for, for a while. But that was 83. And, and in 1982, as, as a young birder that, that had been devouring the, the literature, there was a couple of birds that had turned up in 1982 that all the people that I shared car lifts with to go and see the Ross's Gull had pictures of and talked about. And, and there was the... Saltom long-toed stint in 1982 that hadn't been another one in Britain. Um, there was the Memora's Warbler that had turned up um, in Charlie's County, Yorkshire, at a place called Mid Hope Moor. And Marmara's Warbler was 
the small sylvia warbler that, that breeds on Mediterranean islands in, in the Balearic Islands and in Sardinia and Corsica. And at the time they were one species, they've since been split. But at the time it was deemed to be a very sedentary bird, not prone to vagrancy or long migrations. So the fact that this one had turned up in the middle of Britain on a moorland, it was actually singing and building a nest. Hundreds of people went to see it and it, it was deemed as there will never be another one. So to start <laughs> my twitching career in a lifetime. Yeah, and I had to listen to everybody say, Yeah, that you know, the you know, the the eighty two Memoras Warbler was was there, there were certain birds that, that that were were called blockers. And to define that term, a blocker is a bird that's maybe shown up once and has not been available to the masses of future generations since. And at the time uh. that and long toed stint and Hudsonian Godwit were, were blockers. And um, so anyway. Blockers in terms of people who want to build a big list later probably are never going to be able to get those birds. So never it's some gonna, kind of advantage yep. to people who started earlier. Yep, never going to be able to get them back. Like, you know, it's a once in a lifetime kind of deal. So anyway, I, I was back from traveling and um, I was in Bolton and a few friends of mine, we, we got together playing five a side and we played, soccer was a big passion of mine outside of birding. So we were playing indoor soccer. And uh, I remember on the team, there's, there's always, you know, one guy there to make up numbers. He wasn't a really skilled soccer player. And, you know, he was tall, a bit oafish. He was kind of, you know, a bit of a Hulk smash kind of guy. And well, I remember we were, playing and and this kind of ball came between us and i went to deftly sidekick it and for some reason he decided to like come lumbering over with his like knuckles dragging across the floor and just kick this ball as hard as he could for no apparent reason to me and i had my foot turned sideways and and the force of the kick just twisted my ankle a little bit and i remember feeling like oh that hurt a little bit and anyway, I remember we were going to the pub. We had a couple of pints as we do after, after the match. And I remember getting up in the morning to get out of bed. And I just basically dropped to the floor in pain. I'd put all my pressure on this ankle. And it just felt this shooting pain in my foot. And I looked down and my, my ankle was just twice the size it was the night before. <laughs> and it... There was more colors than a bag of Skittles. And, and I was just like, <laughs> this is not good. So I, I remember crawling on my hands and knees into my parents' room. And I said, look, we're going to have to go to the hospital. I, I think I've broken my foot. So we went to the hospital. We had it x-rayed. And it turned out my foot wasn't broken. And apparently it may have been better had it been broken. But what I'd done is I'd torn all the ligaments in my ankle which was apparently a lengthier healing process than, than just a break. So I was going to be on crutches for quite a while. So they bandaged me up, sent me out, and, you know, I had to spend time walking around on these crutches, which was just, just a pain in the neck. So that, that was kind of how, how I was going to be for most of the spring. 
And I remember I was in the local pub one day, and the way to get information, because there's no cell phones or listservs, you had to go to the phone box and put your money in and, and dial a, an answering service called Birdline, which was run by two Norfolk birders at the time, Richard Millington and Steve Gantler, two well-known British birders. And they'd monetize the bird information service because you paid a premium amount to call into their line to find out what rare birds were around in the country. And I remember this particular day, I think it was like the 8th of June, it was 1992, so I was in my early 20s. And I dropped my money into the phone box and the voice came on and the first words were, in Yorkshire, a singing male memoras warbler at Spurn Point, trapped and wrong. <laughs> and it was like somebody stuck a screwdriver in a wall socket. I was like, oh my God, like, there'll never be another has just turned into there's another. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I, I get a chance. And it, it goes back to that. I need to see this. I need to be part of that club. I need, I need to... <laughs> I need to scrape back that bird that, I, that I'd, I'd missed so that I can be part of that conversation. So... Ooh, great grip back, right? That's another term. Potential grip back, yeah. Um, but I was on crutches and I didn't have a car and Spurn's like 200 miles away. It's a three-hour drive. It, it's on the east coast of Britain. Um, so I was like, how the hell am I going to get there? So... I remember getting on the bus home on these crutches and I remember cutting up a, a, a cardboard box and getting a black marker and I'm like, I'm going to hitch because was, it was midweek, everybody was working. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm going to hitch. And my dad said, what does they mean they're going to hitch? This, this got a bloody bad ankle and a pair of crutches. That's <laughs> like, I don't care, I'm going to hitch. Can you drop me off on the motorway? So I packed up my crutches <laughs> and my telescope and my tripod. And I remember making a couple of Branston pickle and cheese sandwiches and I threw, threw a, a, a soda in my bag. And um, I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to go and figure it out later. So Saturday morning, I had my dad drop me off at, at the roundabout to the motorway. And there was no way of getting to the roundabout. So I had to climb over this fence. <laughs> <laughs> with, with a bag and a pair of in crutches. Crutch, with crutches. Oh, my God, yeah. And the, the, the funny thing is, is as soon as I'd reached the edge of the, the verge of the motorway, a car pulled up. Like, I, I hadn't even got my sign out of my bag that said Hull, which was the next big town. Yeah, you have to be strategic in your hitching because mm -hmm. the worst part is getting dropped off at a place where you can never get another lift. So sometimes you've got to go out of your way to go a little bit further than you want in order to put yourself in a, a better position to get a lift. That never happened. A car stopped. Probably the crutches were a good sympathy hitch. Um, he <laughs> said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Spurn. Are you going to Hull? He's like, I'm going to Hull. And I'm like, you're kidding me. So I, I basically got a lift within a second to three quarters of the way there. And he dropped me off, and I remember I was on the main road, and my strategy was if I can put myself on the main road to Spurn, there'll be other birders going to see this bird because I'm not the only one that needs it. 
there's a good chance I'll get there in a reasonable amount of time. So I started kind of like hobbling down this road on my crutches and I had my... <laughs> I, I, Sympathetically. Yeah, I, and the bag I had, I extended my tripod legs out of my bag. So if anybody driving down the road won't see this poor bugger on crutches, <laughs> they'd see my tripod and realize I was a birder and stop. And that's what happened. A, a guy stopped and it was a, a friend of mine from Liverpool who was on his way there, who I didn't know was on his way there, obviously, and gave me a lift right to the bird. And this is kind of where the story gets a bit crazy. So we get there and for, for British people familiar with Spurn, they'll, they'll know exactly what I mean, but for, for people that aren't familiar with Spurn, it's essentially a small narrow spit that comes out over the Humber estuary and it just basically catches any bird going north to south or birds coming in from, from the coast. But it's a narrow sandy spit and the main habitat there is this dense buckthorn, prickly bushes, impenetrable, typical habitat for Sylvia warblers, skulky, hard to see. And this is where the bird was last seen. It was caught and wrung, uh, banded in America and released and it had been heard singing in this area. So there was quite a, quite a lot of people looking for this bird and it was baking hot, it was June. And I remember just sitting down on this sand dune overlooking this buckthorn bushes and there was a couple of guys next to me. And for hours, nothing. And then all of a sudden the bird would sing. You're like, oh, it's still here. <laughs> nothing happened. And then I got hungry. I, I, I started to eat my sandwiches and, and been speaking to the two guys that were just to the right of me. And we struck up a conversation like you do. And um, there's nothing at Spurn. There's no amenities, there's no restaurants, there's no place. You're out in the middle of nowhere. So I remember sharing my sandwiches with these two guys and they were just like, oh my God, thanks so much. I've not eaten all day, you know. I'm like, no problem. And then about half an hour later, we're just, everybody's just scanning this book down bushes. And I noticed these two guys to my right were kind of huddled close together and they looked like they were intently like looking in a certain direction. So I watched them for a minute and I just sidled over and, and like panic started to set in and I just said, hey, do you have it? As in, do you have the bird? And, and there was a couple of mumbles and I'm like, hey, are you looking at it? Like, yeah, we just had it in this bush. I'm like, dude. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? And they're like, oh, we, we, we didn't want to start a panic and have the bird. I'm like, I'm stood right next to you. I'm like, I just shared <laughs> my sandwiches with you. You rotten buggers. And it was just like, it, that, at that point, you know, I'd been out baking in the sun with, with like a, a, a foot the size of an elephant. And I probably just missed probably one of the few opportunities of seeing this bird. So I'm just like, oh, pretty pissed off at this point and in pain so i was like oh, i'm going around the other the other side of the bushes i'll look from the road and I, I remember stood on the road on the other side of 
the bushes. It was the entrance road that went down to the lifeboat station. And it, it was that panic where all of a sudden the crowd to my left just started peeling off at a fast rate of knots and everybody starts running and you know at that point somebody's found the bird but it's not where you are and i remember trying to run and i felt like forrest gump <laughs> i felt like forrest gump in that scene you know where he, he shakes off his like artificial you know legs that he's had in clamps forever yep and and I'm tr everybody's passing me, and I've got two crutches, and I'm I'm just like oh, pain <laughs> in the neck. And finally, I get up to the crowd, and and I kind of push my way through to the front. Hey, guy on crutches coming through, uh, you know. So I kind of wheedle my way to the front, and the scene is at the end of this big swath of buckthorn. There's one tiny bush, not much bigger than a football sticking out of this dune grass and there's a guy that's like it's in the bush <laughs> and and it's deathly quiet we can't even see the bird in the bush and it's only the size of a football and and i'm trying to rest my binoculars on my crutches and i'm like out of breath and in pain and i'm just like well this is it it's in one tiny bush this is where i get a grip back and we wait, and we wait, and nothing. So at that point, everybody starts to get a bit impatient. So communally, we, we decide we're going to send one guy in. <laughs> We've got the flusher. So mm -hmm. one guy is going to go in and try and coax this bird up into the bush so everybody can get a tick. And the guy goes around the back and... He, he's approaching the bush from the back and we're all we're all watching him he's getting closer and closer and like you can hear a pin drop there's just like nobody talking there's like 400 people looking at this bush and he's getting closer i'm looking at the bush i'm like any minute now any minute now it's going to be on the list and at some point i have the bush in my field of view and i see the guy's knee in the same field of view and <laughs> and i put my bins down and look and he's just stood basically on top of this bush with his hands up in the air going uh no idea so in frustration he he just kicks the bush lightly with his foot and straight away this dark sylvia warbler rockets vertically out of this bush in the air <laughs> everybody's like holy crap and the bird suddenly starts to fly out over the ocean it flies out over the, the, the water, over the beach, and we're all like, where's it going? <laughs> it's going to kill itself in there. And then all of a sudden, at the last minute, it realizes like, going out over the water is not the best option. And it comes flying back, and you know everybody's watching it. And there's a big, long, dark tail. And it comes flying right by us and disappears into this big swath of buckthorn. And we're all like, oh, no oh that's it and i'm gonna be like that's it i that was my only view that i had and we stayed we stayed there till dusk and, and i was so upset because one of the things and i don't know if this is a, an american thing untickable views utvs like in Ooh. british birding 
and and I'm, I'm sure you, you feel the same way personally if you don't get a good view of a rarity it's called untickable views and worse than a dip worse than a dip because now you want to count it but if you count it and your mates have seen it better than you you are now going to be ridiculed as the person that will quote tick anything <laughs> which is a which which is horrible because it means you have no integrity your list tiny step above a stringer yeah your list that you've built means nothing because you will take anything yep. and i'm just like oh for crying out loud i don't want to be one of those guys but i also don't want to dip and i've seen the bird but i didn't really <laughs> see the views i wanted so now my integrity kicks in and it's like i'm gonna stay here another day and i'm gonna try again in the morning to get better views but I have no place to stay. I have basically, <laughs> on I'm on crutches. I have a t-shirt. I've eaten all my sandwiches. I have basically no money. And I'm, I'm like, I'm just going to try and find a shed or some place where I can just like sleep under a bush so that I, it's June. I'm not going to freeze to death. I really don't want to do this. Um, but seeing Memora's Warbler. A second bite of the cherry means I'm going to do what I have to do. And I was walking back to the parking lot and I see a face that I knew from a time I'd spent on Bardsey and we got talking and I told him the situation. He's like, oh, dude, no problem. He's like, I live in Hull. You can stay at my house for the night. I was like, oh, there is a God. I was like, I was like, oh, and he see me on crutches. He's, he's like, come on, I'll give you a lift. I was like, okay, great. Where, where's your car? And he's like, oh, I don't have a car. I have a motorbike. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I was like, oh. So now I remember we go to his house and I'm on the back of his bike. I've, I've got a tripod sticking out of my bike. I'm holding on to two crutches. I don't have a crash helmet. And we drive all the way back to his house and we, we have a great catch up you know he feeds me i have a bed for the night i don't have to sleep under some bush it's 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 looking good and he's like i'm gonna go back for the bird in the morning too i'll give you a ride back and i'm like awesome i get to have coffee so in the morning we go back and we get to spurn and we spend two hours there in the morning the bird's gone the bird went overnight really and wow. The only because it was so terrified of the uh, abuse at the hands of the crowds of twitchers. Oh, I've I've no idea, but it was just I didn't even get a chance to get tickable views, and I I remember other people showing up that day because it was the second day and people were showing up, and they were showing up to to a you know a no show, and the one good thing is a friend of mine showed up with a car that gave me a ride all the way back home. And that was the <laughs> only best thing of that day. Um, so in hindsight, you could say, do I have Mamora's Warbler on my British list? And I would say, being older now, and I don't care, and I've seen them abroad, that bird's firmly on my British list. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, is, is, is that something that... Do, do you have kind of a... a a situation where you deem a bird 
tickable or not, in your perspective, being a tour leader and being brought up in America? I'm not much of a lister, and I, I really haven't, have never kept a list that I was super serious about, so it's, a, it's maybe less of a tough call. The Charlie question, um, probably. Yeah, definitely, definitely. This would be something to discuss with Charlie. I sort of tend to check things off in a field guide, you know, regional field guide or country field guide. And yeah, there are those those edge cases where you're like, well, I did see that and I'm confident it was X, but I'd really like to see it better. I usually just make a little mental note of like, I'm going to go look for that again. It's a different case too when you're talking about something that just lives in a place and then you just have to go back there and find it again as opposed to you know one of these once in a lifetime rarities but now i i have a sense of of the psychological territory there for sure that's a that's an epic story yeah uh, yeah doesn't it, have it, i guess it has a happy ending it, you gotta ride home yeah i gotta ride home and one one of the other things that that that's kind of made that bearable I was in England recently in October and I mentioned at the beginning those once in a lifetime birds that, that showed up in Britain. One of them was the Saltom long-toed stint. There hadn't been another one. Well, there was one in October in Britain, first time that one had been twitchable for 40 years. And when I went home to take care of some family stuff, um, it was at a place not far from Charlie's home in Leeds. And... Um, this long-toed stint had shown up there, been there for a few days. And as soon as I got to Britain, I borrowed my sister's car, went and saw it. So it was kind of apropos that I, I got a second bite at that cherry and got good looks at it. So <laughs> there's always a silver lining. But uh, yeah, the, the British list has become a little bit less important in my life now. It's it's uh, I still get gripped off when I hear of good things in Britain. But yeah, I'm not, not much of a lister myself. The only things that sort of grip me to some degree is when I hear about maybe my friends are seeing a harpy eagle nest in Ecuador or, per yes. or uh, Panama or something. That's sort of, you know, one of these epic birds or, or a ground cuckoo or something. One of these really, really hard to see things that's showing well somewhere in the world. That's that's a bit gripping to me, but not, uh, not from the list building perspective, just from a I really, really want to see that creature kind of perspective. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it was ever about the list for me. I think it was just what we've talked about early on. It was that sense of belonging. And there was a, a, a car group of us from from Bolton that were very good friends. We're still friends to this day. And, you know, those long-lasting friendships and shared experiences and travel, it, it, it's that greater life experience where the finding a passion early on in your life that, that drives you to travel to explore the world you know we're only here once as as far as we know so having those life experiences and and finding a passion early on is is quite rare and, and i think you and i talked about that that there's a lot of people don't understand why we're interested in birds um because they may not have something so obsessive in their life that 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 drives them to kind of you know, explore things that way. So, yeah, I'm just very thankful. Very thankful. I grew up in 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 Britain. Birding at the time, it was it was like a the the golden age of birding, so to speak. 
Well, we should probably wrap up pretty soon. There's a couple things I want to hit on, at least briefly. Yeah. Um, circling way back to the red-breasted nuthatch, you you referenced how you were on the, the sillies, right? And then somebody wrote on the board, red-breasted nuthatch. That raises to me the question of how did information pass among birders in those days? And I also think you briefly mentioned that this was one of the motivations for working your way up the hierarchy is to basically be on the person who gets called when a rarity gets found list. And if you're not fairly high status, you're not going to get that call and you're, you're basically never going to build a list. Is that yeah. accurate? Yeah. So I, I, as, as you kind of surmise there, a lot of it was grapevine, which means that if somebody found a rare bird, they would fawn a friend who would fawn another friend, who would fawn another friend. And that's how the details would be spread. So if you were on the grapevine, as it was called, you get to hear about these birds first. And that way you, you know, you've, you've, you've kind of got a bit of a heads up on, on what, where the birds are. And obviously the quicker you get there, the better chance you have of seeing a rare bird. So um, I somehow managed to get on the grapevine early. There was a guy locally, as I mentioned, Ted Abraham, who, who was well-connected. And then there was another person in Leeds, a guy called Bob Eckersley, who was also very well-connected. And they would call me when anything showed up. And then in turn, all my friends who weren't really connected would call me on a Friday for me to tell them what was wrong. So Friday night, my phone would be ringing like <laughs> 30 times and it would drive my mom and dad insane every weekend. Yeah. And then I would, be, you know, phone calls were not cheap back in the day. So I would be calling 30 people to tell them. So the phone bill, when my mom and dad used to get the phone bill, they'd be like, Jesus Christ, bloody hell. What have you been doing? Put that phone what down. What have you been doing? Yeah, put that bloody phone down. That's all I can hear my dad shouting from the other room. Will you get off that bloody phone? You're costing me a fortune. So that that was basically... Not made of money. Yeah. They, they don't get out for now. Yeah. And um, <laughs> it, 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 it was... Uh, th that was... Or, you know, my parents would get phone calls if I wasn't there. It's like, you know, five people have been ringing about... a. A, a pectoral something at, at Spurn or and and I'm like you've got to take better messages mum <laughs> you've got to take where is it when was it seen this is important I, yes I have to school my parents now in being my rare bird secretary but that was kind of how news spread and um, you know you, you were you were sometimes better off for it because it, it kind of gave you a sense of um, importance in in that that hierarchy, as we've we've talked about from a tribal perspective of of being on the ladder, being important in the community where that you were seen to be getting the information. And I felt good. I felt that I could help spread the word. So I was doing my little bit, but I I felt that. I was in a good position. You know, I'd worked hard to cultivate my my phone grapevine system, so to speak. So was, when you're on Twitches, you know, you'd be swapping phone numbers with a lot of people. And um, 
you know that way you would get information but uh that that's that's what would happen and then you know friday night you'd all call each other and somebody'd arrange a lift i remember my first twitch you know my my mum would just I, I don't know if it's the same with you when you were growing up if your parents just let you go exploring on your own at an early age but in britain you know i'd disappear into the woods forever and my mum would be like yep see you later yep maybe yep yep <laughs> maybe same for me yeah yeah hope you come home it- doesn't seem like too many kids have that degree of freedom anymore in developed countries. Um, or, and, and hitching is just viewed as like a surefire recipe to be murdered. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's interesting. It, it is. And we, the, the other thing, I remember my first Twitch for Ross's goal. It's a bird I dreamed of seeing. You know, John Gooders uh, was a good British ornithologist had written a column in a paper um, about going to try and twitch an ivory gull and his friends went without him they didn't see the ivory gull but while they were there they found a ross's gull and back in the 70s in england that was just it still is a mythical bird but in england back in the 70s it was hugely mythical and i remember reading that and thinking i want to see a ross's gull in britain and as it turned out it was my first twitch and i remember i told my mom i'm like yeah i met a couple of guys at the reservoir that they're going to take me to see this ross's gull and she's like, oh, great. So three o'clock, I bowled myself into a car full of, you know, four other blokes my mom had never met. They'd be like, yeah. she's like, yeah, have a nice time. And I'm just like, you know, I can't even imagine, like, me putting my kid in, in a car full of people I don't know and saying at three o'clock in the morning saying, bye, <laughs> see, you, see you later. It, it's just I don't know the the scenery's changed. I don't think there's any difference now in safety, as as you and I have said. I think it's just more no, broadcast. I think, I think there is a difference. I think it's actually safer now. If you look at crime statistics um, across right. sort of developed countries, right. like things are objectively safer. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, eh? Yeah, this, I, uh, I mean, this... I used to disappear on my bike for. 10 hours at a time, you know, dozens, I, I would ride dozens of miles just on public highways all over the place and um, explore. And I mean, they, they had no idea where I was. I didn't have a cell phone. I had no way of contacting them. If I got hit by a, a truck or something, you know, I, I was, presumably somebody would have helped me, but I was, it wasn't like I was going to pick up my cell phone and call them or call 911 or something. Uh, no, I, I remember. Weird how different that world seems. Yeah, a quick a quick anecdote on that is I, my, my dad used to be a good crown green bowler, which essentially, for those that don't know, it, it, it's, it's a bit like bachi. Uh, there's a big square patch of mown lawn and you have to basically get your bowls as close to the smaller bowl as possible. And my, my dad was a really good crown green bowler. He used to play in these competitions. So every weekend he'd be in a competition and it would be kind of if you get through the first round, you progress to, to ultimately the final, but it's all done in one day. So you could be knocked out in the first round in an hour or you could, it could be a five hour deal. So one day, you know, I, I must have been 11 or 12. I was younger than Alex and he was going past this, this lodge, this lake called Runworth Lodge. And I was like, Oh, can, can you drop me off at Runworth? I can I can go birding while you're. He's like, yeah, no problem. So he dropped me off there. He went he went um, 
went off to do his thing and he said, you know, I'll pick you up here later. And I was out birding and um, my dad ended up getting through the first round, the second round. He ended up winning the tournament, but it meant that he was there for five hours. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, he was like, like panicking. He's like, oh my God, I've left, I've left my son in the middle of like the, the, the woods there's no way you can contact him. Like you said, there's no phone. Um, so he, he tells me he was panicked. He remembered coming up to, to the reservoir and seeing me in the field walking up to meet him. And he's like, like apologetic and he's like kind of visibly, you know, feeling bad about this. And all I said is, oh, is it time to go yet? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I was just happy. I was, just, I could have stayed out there for another five hours. I'm like, you know, he was just, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing that that, 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 that was how things worked back in the day. Yeah, I just, I remember that sense of just losing myself in the woods, really getting into a kind of flow state and, you know, losing track of time and, um, yeah, sometimes even wishing that like the day could just last forever because I could just keep birding for an unlimited amount of time. Um, yeah, it's very different than life now, at least for most folks. Well, there's one more story we, we have to get to before we wrap up this podcast. This is something you shared before we recorded this episode. And this was basically a case where hundreds of the best birders in Britain all convinced themselves they'd seen something that they hadn't. <laughs> Do you want to tell folks this story? Oh, yeah. Um, so I think this is not isolated in, in, in Britain. Uh, it, it's a story that, that I remember well, and I've seen it happen in, in the States too. I mean, this, this will resonate with, with a lot of birders that, that have seen something similar to this happen and probably wonder how on earth that could happen and i'm sure like yourself as a reliable observer who pays attention you sit back when you hear these stories uh, and and i've seen it happen even recently in connecticut you're like how you can understand one person making a mistake but how do <laughs> How do hundreds of people make the same mistake? And it's been very fascinating to me. I've delved into this. I do kind of a little talk about it in, in one of my lectures on the psychology of the brain and how it can kind of trip us up. And so back in 1988, I think it was, um, Paddy Field Warbler is a, 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 a rub visitor to Britain, usually in autumn. From Asia, they breed as close as southeastern Turkey, and this bird had not that been, close. Not that close, uh, and this bird had been trapped in May. It was, I think, it's the first spring record for Britain. It had been caught and banded or rung at a place called Langard, which is in the southeast. Um, it's on the southeast coast of Britain. And it was a mega rarity at the time. And everybody had been to see it the first weekend. And I had actually been somewhere else and I wasn't able to go. 
So generally, my twitches were weekends only because that's when all my lifts weren't working. You know, my main lift was a school teacher. So during the week, I couldn't get to these rare birds unless I hitched. So I had to wait the whole weekend and it was still there. And I think there'd been 700 people the first weekend seeing this bird, including like a lot of top British birders. So on the Friday, I decided I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> I just needed to go and see this bird. So I hitched down. It took me seven hours to hitch down to this place. And I got to this little reserve and I went to the spot. You know, I had my little treasure map. This is where it's been seen. X marks the spot. <laughs> and I was there and I was looking and, and I see this warbler pop out and it, it, it looks a bit weird. I'm not quite sure what it is, but back in the day, you know, I, I knew all the field marks. I knew what to look for. Um, and I'm looking at this, this bird. I'm like, it doesn't have a, a big whitish supercilium. It doesn't have a short primary projection. Tail doesn't look disproportionately long. It doesn't have a dark tip to the lower mandible. I'm like, what is going on? Is is this the bird? And anyway, I see two people walking towards me. And one of them is the warden. And he'd been the one showing people where the bird had been hanging out. He's the one that actually caught and wronged the bird the week before. And I said, I've got this bird here. He says, yeah, that's the bird. And I, hmm. I'm a bit confused. I said, well, Really? I said, it, it's not quite showing all the features of a paddy field warbler. He says, no, that's a bird. That's definitely the bird. I've been here all week. Hundreds of people have seen it. That's the bird. And he walks off, and it's now the afternoon. It's taken me seven hours to hitch there, and I've got to hitch back. And it's a long way home. And... I just remember taking a lot of notes and, and, and feeling somewhat confused because I can't quite count this bird as a paddyfield warbler because it just doesn't look like one to me. But what am I supposed to do? You know, more people, better people than me have seen this bird. So as I'm, as I'm starting to walk away, it starts to sing. And it's a chiff-chaff. A common <laughs> British breeding bird and I'm now even more confused. So I get home and the next day I call Birdline and there's a note on Birdline that basically said the bird present for a week and previously reported and believed to be a panifield warbler has now been re-identified as a chiff chaff. Now I didn't, <laughs> I didn't make the call. Somebody else must have seen that happen too and made the call. And I just felt relieved. I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. I feel so much better now that. But I'm like, how did that happen? How did 600 people see that bird and tick it as a paddyfield warbler? And and I'm sure you have heard similar stories in, in the States. I know there was um, a, a skylark, right, in California that was identified as a Smith's Longspur or the other way around. I'm not sure. And seen by a lot of top California birders until somebody came up and went, yeah, that's that's not what it's supposed to be. So, <laughs> I, 
Yeah, what uh, what's going on there? Is it uh, is it people don't they have doubts, but they they don't want to speak up because everyone else has said this is X, or is it just desperately wanting to believe it's X so you can add it to your list? Or yeah, what is the deal? So so I think looking at this, I think this is where the 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 biases in psychology come in, and we've seen it on Facebook or. Anytime that, that there's a group of people that... Now I like a challenge, so I, I like looking at a picture and figuring out what it is. And, you know, on, on Facebook, you have a lot of similar people doing the same thing. And there's something about you having an idea of what a bird is, and then let's say you or Charlie or, you know, a, a, a friend of mine that I think is very reliable, Al, Alvaro Jaramillo, who you had on, you know, he's really yep. he's really good. He's he's zoned in, and it could be somebody in Britain that you that, that you regard as having a good identification skill set, like Killian Milani, for instance. And you want to be on the right side. You want to get it right. At least I do. So there's that. Well, do you believe your own judgment? If somebody else says it's this that you respect, do you waver? Do you start to kind of want to fit in and, and, and share in that success, so to speak? So I think the psychology is there's an authority bias there, right? Which is the tendency to attribute a greater accuracy to the opinion of like of an authority figure or somebody that knows more and you're more likely to be influenced by that opinion, right? So when that happens, I think it's also regarded that the uptake of ideas and opinions increase, like the more they're adopted by other people. And I'm not sure right. why and that things is. Things almost go viral or they gain momentum. What what most surprises me about that story, though, is that obviously very good people who had like good reputations, were viewed as reliable, saw the bird and called it a paddyfield warbler, and then that mo- momentum started to build. That's a bit surprising given what you've described with birding culture in Britain about how careful people were, about how you took notes, about how you were almost obsessive about getting things right. Yeah. Quite and surprising I, that, that happened. I, and, and I think that's, that's there's, there's a quote by Steve Jobs where, where it, it says, you know, don't let the noise of other opinions cloud your inner voice. And I think that's what happens is I think there's some psychological bias there because we want to conform, right? We want to get information from others. We want to be part of that. We want to share in the success. And, and, and it's that kind of jumping on the bandwagon aspect to it. And I think the brain's very, very powerful. And I think it can just, you know, your mind playing tricks on you exists for a reason. That's saying, and, and you know, it. I would think, that's crazy. I can't, that would never, that would never happen to me. I've never been in a situation where I've kind of looked at a bird and believed it's something else, because I feel I'm objective. You know, I draw a bird, I look at it in my own way. And as I started to think about that, I realized it had happened to me. Um, it happened to me in Jamaica. I was co-leading the tour there, and the guy at a, that was leading the trip, the local guide, said. This is a place where we get po to. So we went out at night 
bird flew onto the wire we got it in this in the spotlight i saw it it was like awesome pole two took a picture of it ran back got the clients came back and watched it it was only when i was writing the trip report up that i thought something was funny about it <laughs> i looked at the picture it was a chuck will's widow it wasn't a it wasn't oh man it was a Chuck Will's Widow, and I know both those birds very well. One's got a big yep. yellow eye, one doesn't. <laughs> but I'd been preconditioned by the guy that this is where he's seen Poe to, this is where you get Poe to, this is where I'm going to see one. So when it popped up in his light and he said, there it is, I, I was already brainwashed into thinking... That's what yep. I was going to see. You were uh, primed. You were. Pr it was almost like a magician type of scenario. And, you and were that, primed to and, see something. Yeah, and that's how I imagined this. This happened, and it, it 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 was humbling because, you know, personally, you think, ah, I can't be hypnotized. You know, that'll never happen to me. But it just it just goes to show. I think that's how people get into trouble. Um, you know, we've all looked at a plastic bag when we're looking for snowy owls. You know, we see the we see the we see the bird move, you know, but it's a plastic bag. So yeah, it's it's fascinating to me, you know. It's like, you know, those stains appearing on a church window that, that look like the Virgin Mary and you know, thousands of people go down there and you know, look at a stain on a window. It's 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 crazy and you know, it, it even morphs into other areas that aren't birding. I mean, eyewitness testimony is fraught with biases, you know. We, oh, yeah. we know in the media so many people have been jailed based purely on eyewitness testimony who have been exonerated years after by DNA evidence. So it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky and really interesting thing to look at when, when it's from a birding perspective where you have like a mass hallucination event it's 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 pretty pretty extraordinary yeah some of the people people had spent their whole lives honing their skills and their knowledge in order to make just this kind of judgment call to properly identify a bird like that all getting it completely wrong in concert uh fascinating stuff yeah it's, definitely i mean we're we're very communal creatures and i think sort of fitting in in a group in some sense often gets priority over getting it right and uh you see that in so many areas yeah um, it and, just... and birding i mean our, our perceptions are just so fallible so that's a, a fascinating thing to me about birding is that we're often making judgment calls based on just very fleeting perceptions of something and it's both amazing that we can often get it right you know that's quite exciting to essentially just grow your abilities to perceive things accurately and identify birds accurately. But it's also good to remember just how fallible we are and how easily we can get things wrong. Yeah. So, so birding kind of brings you in touch with both. It does. And, and as you said, from a totally perspective, you know, you're calling birds out on the fly and that goes into the whole, you know, birding by, by jizz. You know, it's that 10,000 hour rule coming into play where in an instant in a habitat you know all the birds there you've basically thin sliced all the information in a matter of seconds to 
put a name to that bird that, 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 that you see. You know, you could be driving down the highway and see a red-breasted nuthatch fly across and you're doing 80, you know, and you know, I could say to Ingrid, oh, look, red-breasted nuthatch. And she's like, how could you possibly know that? <laughs> you know, and that's 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 kind of what what what's amazing about the brain is that you know you can assimilate all that in a matter of seconds and identify stuff and it's it is it's fascinating stuff. I mean, it's a whole podcast just just on that. So I appreciate you. Thanks so much yep. for letting me ramble on. I I've enjoyed coming on the show <laughs> no, again. It's been a, you'll be it's split, been a great chat. You'll Thanks. be splitting this one up again. <laughs> No, it's been great. Thanks, uh, thanks for chatting, Julian. Thanks for your time. Uh, it's it's really uh, it's been interesting. I, I even he- hesitate to end the conversation, but I think we both have to get on with our days. So yeah, but maybe we'll we'll chat about just identification at some point. That there's rich territory there. Uh, I think for the natural uh, sound, nothing would be more appropriate than Memora's warbler. We can imagine you kind of staring at that little point and and listening for these little Sylvia warbler sounds. I think that'd be a good natural sound.